I was thinking, what a blessing it is to be a church family. What a blessing it was to, to dedicate Noah this morning. It's been so awesome to see Jeff and Lindsay as parents and to watch their excitement. And, and we got the whole extended family here this morning. So it's been exciting to see Noah in that family. And, and it's a blessing for us as their church family to be able to minister to Noah. But as I was thinking about Noah, I was thinking about my Riley girl. Again, she's, she's gone. And I was remembering when she was that age. Uh, when, when Riley was Noah's age, I was actually asked to teach a Sunday school class on parenting. And, and I remember being quite surprised by that because I, I was just trying to figure out this parenting thing for myself. Um, so I didn't think I was in any position to go teach a class on parenting. But the good news turned out to be that it was a video class, so I was just to be there to, to facilitate discussion after the video to help explore the, the different biblical texts that were brought up in the video. So I agreed to do it. And, and looking back on that, teaching that class was probably one of the most helpful things for me as a young parent. Uh, it really helped my, me chart my course, so to speak, as, as a young parent. Uh, the video series that we worked through, uh, and why this class was so helpful was because of the video series. The video series that we worked through was called Shepherding a Child's Heart. It was based on a book by Ted Tripp, same title, Shepherding a Child's Heart. Any of you familiar with that book? Excellent book. And so that was so, so helpful for me. Now, now the premise of that, that book and that video series is that parenting is really, Christian parenting, is really all about discipleship. It's really about discipleship. As Christian parents, you aren't just preparing your kid to, to grow up and get a good job or to be a healthy member of society or to find the right spouse. Instead, you are really raising them up to understand who they are under God, to understand why they need Jesus Christ, and to understand what it looks like to live as a follower of him. It's really discipleship. So, so that means that parenting isn't simply about behavior modification. It isn't about, you know, okay, kid, follow the rules, play nice with your sister. It's not just about that kind of stuff. It's about deeper things. It's about their hearts. It's about shepherding their hearts. It's about exposing their little hearts to the truth. It's about helping them to understand the, the sin, the rebellion that resides in those little hearts as they push back against the truth. And then it is about shepherding your child to the cross, leading them to see that the only hope for these sinful hearts of ours, it's not just your kids that have sinful hearts, right? For all of our hearts, the only hope is Jesus Christ. The only hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, in this book that lays out parenting as discipleship, uh, the first principle that the author, Ted Tripp, recommends teaching your kids, the, the foundational principle in which all the other shepherding is built, is the principle that your child is a person under authority. Your child is a person under authority. That, that's really discipleship 101 with your kids. They are a person under authority. They need to learn that there first is an ultimate authority. And who is the ultimate authority? Okay, good. Some of you are on that. We might have to have a side class with some of the rest of you. <laughs> yeah, the ultimate authority is God himself. Then they need to realize that you as their parent have been delegated authority, so you're an authority over them. And they need to be taught that they are called to, to live as a person under that authority. And when you think about that, um, that is such a foundational truth, isn't it? It's such an important truth. I mean, really, everything else that you will teach them, everything else that, that you shepherd them in, it flows out of their understanding of this truth, that they are a person under authority. I mean, just think about their, their understanding of right and wrong, of sin. Can they really recognize sin if they first don't understand that they're a person under authority? If, if there are rules and commands that they need to obey? I mean, what is sin if there is no authority, right? Can, think about their understanding of the gospel. Can they really see um, the good news of the good news, that there is salvation from judgment through Jesus Christ? Can they really understand the good news of the good news if they first don't realize that they're a person under authority who's going to be accountable to that authority? Think about their daily Christian living. I mean, how would they be able to, to walk in wisdom, to really live in the fear of the Lord if they first haven't been taught that there is someone greater than themselves, that the universe doesn't revolve around them? You see how foundational, how essential this truth is? This lesson that your child enters this world as a person under authority is a core truth in, in which each and every child needs to be raised up. But here's the thing this morning. It's not just a core truth for kids, is it? 
not just a core truth for kids. This is an essential truth for who? <laughs> yeah, for everybody. It is a truth that every human heart needs to realize. We all need to understand that we are people under authority. People under the ultimate authority of who? Of God himself. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. We are people under the authority of God. I want us to really think about and think through our understanding of this. Not, not our kids' understanding of this. But our understanding of this. And again, I say this, but I'm past. I'll say it again. Um, when we talk about this, don't just think about, yeah, my neighbor really needs to understand this. Or my, my coworker really needs to understand this. Or my spouse really needs to understand this. Or my teenager really needs to understand this. I really want you to think this morning about you as an individual. Okay? Do you understand this? Do we understand this? Do we live this way as people under God's authority? Do, do we see ourselves this way? Or are we instead living like we're an authority unto ourselves? Seriously, are we living like we are an authority unto ourselves? Are we living like, dare I say it, petulant little children, eager to challenge authority so that we can do what we want, when we want, instead of living as obedient children, joyfully embracing the loving authority of our God? I keep saying the word we, but really think about you as an individual. How are you understanding these truths? How do we respond to the authority of God? That's our question for this morning. And that's our question for this morning because I believe that's the question raised in our text for this morning. So take your Bibles and turn over to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. And if you don't have a Bible this morning, we've got some in the back so you can grab one of those. Anybody just slip up your hand. We'll make sure you've got a Bible so you can follow along. All right, and for those of you visiting with us this morning, we, are, we have been working through the Gospel of Mark, just, just speeding our way. <laughs> through this book. But here we are in chapter 12. And this is now our, our third week walking through this particular section of Mark, a, a section in which Mark shows us Jesus being challenged by the leadership of Israel. Now, at this point in, in Mark's account of the life and ministry of Jesus, Jesus has come to Jerusalem, and things are really, really ramping up. Um, we're quickly approaching the betrayal of Jesus by one of his disciples. Then we will witness the condemnation of Jesus by Israel's leadership through, through a mock trial. And then we will take in the uh, rejection of Jesus. We'll witness the rejection of Jesus by, by the crowds that once hailed him as king. And then Mark will show us the brutal crucifixion and death of Jesus. However, before we come to that climactic section of this book, Mark is here walking us through scene after scene after scene of conflict, of conflict. In the end of chapter 11 and, and then through, the most of, through most of chapter 12, we see a series of debates, a series of debates between Jesus and the elite and influential of Israel. And, and this section, these series of conflicts and debate, it really centers around this idea of authority. It really centers around this idea of authority. This section began with a question of authority. Look back at chapter 11, verse 27. Chapter 11, verse 27. And there we read... And they, speaking of Jesus and his disciples, came again to Jerusalem. And again, we've seen them. This is the third day in Jerusalem. They've been going into Jerusalem. Then they've been leaving and going to Bethany and then returning to Jerusalem. So now this is their third day. And they, Jesus and his disciples, came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and said to him, what? By what? Authority. See the issue here? What's the issue? Authority. By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority to do them? Now remember, in the days prior to this, Jesus had entered Jerusalem with cries of Hosanna. Here's salvation. Here is the king. He entered with cries of Hosanna. And then on the following day, he cleansed the temple. You remember that? Drove those people out of the temple. So he's done some pretty provocative and challenging things prior to this particular scene. And here Mark shows us Israel's leadership, the, the chief priests, the scribes and the elders, which was really another way of saying the Sanhedrin, Israel's ruling council. He shows us Israel's leadership come to Jesus, and they demand he, that he explain his authority for the things that he has done. They demand an explanation. They're coming really demanding his credentials. They're demanding that he prove his authority. And Jesus does this 
but he does it in a very interesting way. First, he points the group to John the Baptist. He points them to John the Baptist, and through use of a challenging question, you see it there in verse 30 of chapter 11. Look at the question. Was the baptism of John from where? From heaven or from man? So what was the basis of John's authority, right? Was it from heaven? Was it from God? Or was it just man-made authority? Jesus says, was the baptism from John of John from heaven or from man? Answer me, he demands. But through use of that challenging question, Jesus really enters into the position of a teacher. He's teaching these men. And he's teaching them that if they would simply recognize the authority that John had, John the Baptist, this prophet sent from God. If they would simply recognize John's authority, then they would understand Jesus' authority. For, for what was the point of John's ministry? What was the point? Who was John pointing to? Yeah, John was pointing to Jesus. That was the point of John's ministry. John was the voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for who? For the Lord. He was the one who said, remember this? After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. And who is he talking about? Jesus. After me comes the mightier one. I'm not even worthy to be a sandal slave. John's the one who said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John pointed to Jesus. And if these men would simply acknowledge the source of John's authority, then they would understand Jesus' authority. But they aren't really interested in that. They are there to challenge, not to understand. And that point is made abundantly clear in the parable that Jesus tells next. Chapter 12 opens with a parable about authority. You have this question of authority, and then chapter 12 opens with a parable of authority. Look at what Mark writes, starting in verse 1. Chapter 12, verse 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. And here's one of the parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, and dug a pit for the wine press, and built a tower, and leased it to tenants, and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they took him, they took that servant, and beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head, and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. He, this vineyard owner, had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Then Jesus asked this question, What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants. And give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. And then verse 12, we see their response. And they were seeking to arrest him. But feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left and went away. They, they perceived that he had told the parable against them. Were they right? Yeah, they were right. Jesus had told the parable about these guys. As I explained last week, this parable is a picture of Israel and her leadership. She is the vineyard. God is the vineyard owner. And the tenant farmers represent Israel's leadership, her leadership. And they were brought into the vineyard to to cultivate the vineyard, to gather harvest from the vineyard. They were to cultivate the obedience and the worship of God. But instead of cultivating that, What do they do? They want to just keep everything where? They just want to keep everything for themselves. They want to keep all the praises, all the worship, all the accolades for themselves. And so God sent his servants. He sent prophet after prophet after prophet. And the sad story of the Old Testament is Israel's leadership rejecting God's servants, abusing God's servants, even killing many of God's servants, the prophets. John himself being the last in that line of rejected And murdered prophets. But then in the fullness of time, God sent the one more, right? God sent his son. And how do these tenants, these leaders of God's people, respond to the son and his authority? Look again at verses 7 and 8. But those tenants said to one another, what? This is the... Do they recognize who he is? They Yeah, they sure recognize who he is. And then they say, come, let us... 
bow down and worship him. Let us give him the honor that's due him. Let us submit to his authority. No, come let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. That's how Israel's leadership will respond to Jesus. And here in the temple on that day, Jesus called them out publicly for this. He painted a graphic picture of their rejection of his rightful authority. But instead of repenting of their, their vile wickedness, what do they do? Mark shows us they, they retreat, they regroup, and then they attack again. And that is where our text for this morning begins. It begins with, us show, with Mark showing us what I'll call Jesus the hunted. Jesus the hunted. Look at verse 13 of chapter 12. And they sent to him, to Jesus, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to do what? In order to trap him. They, the Sanhedrin, get some new recruits, these Pharisees, these Herodians, and they send these guys in order to go hunt Jesus. They're trying to trap Jesus. But before we start talking about their trap, let's first look at these hunters themselves. Because here we find a very unlikely partnership. These Pharisees teamed up with a bunch of Herodians. And and I say it's an odd partnership because these two groups really represented the opposite ends of the the political, the philosophical spectrum there in Jerusalem. Uh, What we have here is kind of like a bunch of Republicans and Democrats working together to actually get something done. And as that would be strange and bizarre for us to witness, it's kind of the same thing we're seeing here. This is really strange. You see, the Pharisees, they, they were the conservative party of their day. Uh, they, they were the nationalists, those who were passionate about Israel. They were the purists, those who agonized over every jot and tittle of the law. And as we've seen repeatedly in the Gospel of Mark, they were also a bunch of hypocrites. They were a bunch of hypocrites. Their passion for Israel and their zeal for the law had, had corrupted, had spiraled into this legalistic self-righteousness. And again, numerous times in the Gospel of Mark, we've watched Jesus call them out for this. But here we find these, these nationalistic legalists, these Pharisees, partnering with what you might describe as the Jewish liberals, the, the Herodians. Uh, the Herodians, they, they were all for loose living in foreign ways. I guess we could put it that way. That's what they were about. They were like the bizarro world version of the Pharisees. You know, they were the polar opposite of these guys. Now, they were called Herodians because they were avid supporters of Herod and, and his family. Uh, the Herods had ruled over much of Judea, serving as political leaders under the authority of Rome. You had Herod the Great, and then you had his son Herod Agrippa and all these other Herods. And so they'd ruled over this particular area. But these rulers over the Jews, they weren't what you'd call model Jews. Um, first, they, they were from a mixed heritage, so that really bothered the Jews. And then they also embraced all things pagan. Pagan art, pagan architecture, pagan philosophy, and pagan morals. Remember, John the Baptist was beheaded by this group, and why was he beheaded? He'd called out one Herod for taking his brother's wife, who was actually his niece, and making her his own. So that's, that's the dysfunctional family by anybody's definition, right? So... These guys had really loose morals. They were very they were fans of all things foreign, all things pagan. And so that's, that's the Herods, and the Herodians were their supporters. Um, as commentator William Hendrickson explains, only in a very external sense did these people, the Herodians, practice the Jewish religion. So they were kind of at the far end of really practicing Judaism. So instead of practicing Judaism, they really more so they took on the characteristics of The Herods, again, loose-living, fans of pagan culture. They were very liberal in their understanding of what it meant to be a Jew. So you have two opposing parties, two groups that really embrace contradictory ideology, but here they are, united by a common enemy. They've come together hunting Jesus. And their approach is to set a trap for Jesus. They want to set what what you might call a, a talk trap. For Jesus. Mark says, verse 13, they want to try to trap him in his words, in his talk. The idea is to get Jesus into a debate that he can't help but lose and do this publicly. But before we talk about, about their snare, their trap, uh, let's first look at how they try to disguise their trapping intentions. They first try to disguise their intentions behind what I'll call a camouflage of flattery. Look, look at the beginning of verse 
14. They first approach Jesus by saying what? What's, what do they call him? Teacher. Let's just stop for a moment and just kind of think about that. These guys approach Jesus with this title of respect, teacher. But do they really respect him? Have they come to Jesus to learn from Jesus? No, why are they there? Yeah, they don't believe him, and they want to trap him, okay? So they come, they say, teacher, what's the next thing out of these guys' mouths? Teacher, we know that you are true, truthful. Please do not miss the irony here. We know you're true. These guys are liars who have come to trap Jesus, yet the first thing they commend him for is what? We know you are true. We know you are true. Like they value that at all, right? And then they say what? And you do not care about anyone's opinion. Jesus, you're not afraid to upset anyone by what you say. And again, the irony here is rich. Remember remember back in chapter 11, we witnessed the leadership of Israel flat out refuse to answer Jesus' question about John. They answered, we don't know. Remember that? They refused to answer Jesus' question about John because look at verse 32, chapter 11. They were what? Afraid of who? Yeah, we're afraid we're going to upset people, right? And then what do we see in the end of the parable that starts chapter 12? Look at verse 12 of chapter 12. And they were seeking to arrest Jesus, but what? They were afraid of the crowd. They feared the people. So these guys are controlled by what people think, by the fear of man. But here they are praising Jesus for for just the opposite. Again, like these guys really value these things. Do, Do you see just in their approach? Do you see their hypocrisy? You see it? Then they continue, for you are not swayed by appearances, but you truly teach the ways of God. Again, you have to wonder how these guys did not choke on their words. You're not swayed by appearances. I mean, these guys are all about what? They're all about people's appearances, right? They're all about the outside. Remember what Jesus called the Pharisees? You whitewashed sepulchers. You whitewashed tombs. Why did he call them that? Because you look nice on the outside, but in the inside you're full of what? Death, dead man's bones. You're all about the external appearance, and the same is true of the Herodians. I mean, whatever was foreign, whatever was in, that's what we want to put on. That's what we care about, the external. So these guys are praising Jesus for things that are completely absent in their own value system. They're a bunch of phonies. And then to say, you truly teach the way of God. I mean, that is really the cherry on top of their insincerity Sunday, isn't it? I mean, do they really believe that he truly teaches the way of God? Do they really believe that? I mean, if they do, why don't they submit to him? If, that, if they really believe that, why are they there to try to trap him? They don't believe that at all. You see, every word coming out of their mouths, they don't truly believe. They don't truly believe. They are deceivers, simply trying to set Jesus up with their flattery. But that being said, everything these deceivers say the entirety of their description of Jesus, although they don't believe any of it, it's all really true, isn't it? It's all really true. Maybe I think this is the greatest irony here. Although they don't mean a word of what they say, all of what they say is still true. Jesus is the truthful teacher, isn't he? Amen? He is the truthful teacher. He isn't a slave to the opinion of others. He isn't swayed by people's position or their appearance. It doesn't matter to Jesus if you are rich or if you are poor, if you are a scholar or if you are an uneducated person. It doesn't matter if you are a slave or a free man. Jesus will treat you the same. Amen? Jesus is the truthful teacher who speaks the ways of God to everyone. He is the indiscriminate king and savior of God's people. You see, what has spilled out of their deceitful mouths is still true. It's like that old saying, even a broken clock is right twice a day, right? So these guys are right, even though they don't mean it. But, but these broken clocks aren't just there to flatter Jesus. They've come and they're buttering him up, but they're buttering up so that they hope he doesn't recognize their snare. And, and we see that snare in the end of verse 14. The snare, the trap, is in their question. Look at their question. Look at it there. What's the question? Is it lawful to do what? To pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them, Jesus, or shouldn't we? Now, you need to understand that these guys aren't just asking a question about taxation in general. Instead, they are asking Jesus to weigh in on a very specific tax, uh, a tax that was sometimes called the tax of Caesar, Caesar's tax. 
Mark here actually uses the Greek transliteration of the Latin word for census. And that's the tax that these guys are asking about, the census tax. You see, at this time in Israel's history under Roman occupation, Caesar had placed a poll tax on every Jewish male in Judea, so in the region where Jerusalem was located. And this tax, it wasn't an exorbitant, uh, unreasonably high tax. It was a tax you paid one time per year per adult male. And you had to pay one denarius per year per adult male. Now, a denarius, that was the equivalent of of a day's wages for for a farmhand, for an agricultural laborer. So it didn't amount to a lot of money. It was kind of the low end of the pay scale for, uh, for a day's wage. So it wasn't an exorbitant tax, but it was still a really unpopular tax there in Judea. Uh, the majority of the people detested this census tax, this tax to Caesar. And they detested it because it was a clear and powerful and yearly reminder that they were now under the authority of Rome. It was a reminder that they were the, under the authority of Rome. Just to give you an example of how much they hated this particular tax, uh, when this tax was introduced in 6 AD, it caused a Jewish revolt. It caused a rebellion. Uh, the rebellion was led by a guy named Judas the Galilean. And Judas's rallying cry was, according to Jewish historian Josephus, his rallying cry was, taxation is no better than slavery. That'll work up a crowd, right? Taxation is no better than slavery. A- and Judas really stirred up this rebellion by telling Jewish men that they were both cowardly and blasphemous if they paid this tax. He, he saw it as giving your allegiance to Rome instead of giving your allegiance to God. Now, Judas led this rebellion. Then Rome stepped in and put down this rebellion, forcibly put down this rebellion. But the spirit of this rebellion, the spirit of this revolt, lived on. Uh, The tax was still very much a hot-button issue in Judea. So these men are asking Jesus to weigh in on it. And notice how they ask Jesus about this tax. How do they frame their question? What's the first thing they ask? Is it what? Is it lawful? Is it lawful? And what they're after is this, is paying the census tax, is giving this tribute to Caesar, is that in accordance with the Mosaic law? Is it lawful? This is a very Jewish question. They aren't simply asking, was it legal under Roman authority? They're asking if this is the right thing for a Jew to do. They're really attempting to pull Jesus into their own political squabbles into their own political debate. As you can imagine, both of these groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians, landed on different sides of this issue. You can probably guess where the Pharisees landed on this particular issue, right? The Pharisees, they, they were extremely nationalistic. So they hated, they hated this tax. They saw it in a similar way to Judas the Galilean. They saw it as a, a blasphemous expression of Rome's oppression of them. So they hated it. But they still paid it. They still paid the tax. They weren't like the zealots who flat out refused to pay. But they would have never publicly spoken positively about this tax. They would never said a good word about this tax. That was the Pharisees and the Herodians. You can guess where they landed. They were on the other side of the issue. They were supporters of the Herods. So they were supporters of Rome. They were Roman apologists. So they spoke positively about this tax. So can you start to see the dilemma being created here? These two groups come to Jesus they're on the different sides of this political issue, and they're asking him to weigh in. They're attempting to pull him into their conversation. And where Jesus lands on this issue is going to have serious ramifications. See, here's how their trap works. As commentator George Knight explains, if Jesus simply said, yes, pay the tax, then the nationalistic Pharisees would say to the crowd, see, he is no prophet of God because he is not loyal to our nation." He's no prophet of God. He's not loyal to our people. Jesus would have been labeled a traitor, and he would lose face with the people. And this would have been great in the eyes of Israel's leadership. Remember, the Sanhedrin wants to arrest Jesus. What's been preventing them? Jesus' popularity with the people. But if Jesus lost favor with the people, say, by supporting something unpopular like this tax, then the leadership would be free to do whatever they wanted. So... If he answers positively, yes, pay the tax. Oh, you're a traitor. But what if Jesus answered the question negatively? What if instead of supporting the tax, he publicly opposed it? That would probably win a lot of favor with the people, right? That would impress the crowds. But that would have created a real problem with who? With Rome. We have a real problem with Rome. You see, if Jesus publicly opposed the tax, then he'd be publicly opposing who? Rome, Rome yeah, and Caesar. 
And so you can just picture the scene. If that happened, then the Herodians would run off and say what? Hey, look, look, look at this guy over here. Jesus, he's an insurrectionist. He's just like Judas the Galilean. He is opposing Rome. He's trying to stir up a rebellion. You need to do something with this insurrectionist. So, so these guys, these Jesus hunters, they think they have a pretty good trap. And they've tried to disguise their trap with their flattery. Then they've tossed out this hot button, no win question. And now they're simply standing back, waiting for Jesus to answer, to step forward into their snare. And Jesus does step forward. But uh, these silly fools cannot trap Jesus. I mean, haven't we seen this already numerous times? People try to do this, try to trick Jesus. Can they do that? No. Don't you just love watching Jesus in these scenes and you see his authority and his wisdom and his power? These silly people try to trap him, but that's not going to happen. You see, what happens in verses 15 to 17 is that Jesus turns the tables on them. Jesus goes from being the hunted to being the hunter. He goes from being the prey to being the teacher. So we've talked about Jesus, the hunted. Now let's look at Jesus, the teacher. And let's start by looking at Jesus' reaction to the flattery of these guys. Jesus' reaction to their flattery. Will Jesus be swayed? Will he be influenced? Will he be deceived? Will he be duped in any way, shape, or form by the flattery of these men? What do you think? No, not at all. And the reason for that is that Jesus knows the heart. Jesus knows the heart. Look at verse 15. But knowing their what? Their hypocrisy. You see, Jesus sees right through these guys. He sees right through these guys. And he saw right through their trap because Jesus wasn't all wrapped up in the opinions of other people. Amen? He wasn't all wrapped up in the opinions of other people. Just like these guys had said. They didn't really mean it, but they said it. He doesn't care about anyone's opinion. Jesus isn't an opinion slave. He doesn't live by the fear of man. The only opinion that Jesus cares about is whose? Yeah, the Father's. And the Father has already declared what? This is my beloved Son. In him I am well pleased. So confident in that, freed from the bondage of others' opinions, and filled with the Spirit, Jesus saw right through their hypocrisy. He saw right through their flattery. He saw right through it, and then he saw what they were up to. He asked them point blank in front of everyone. Look at the question he says to them. Why do what? Yeah, why put me to the test? Why put me to the test? Now, this term test, when used by Mark, always has a negative connotation. It's used four times in the Gospel of Mark. It's used here. It's used back in chapter 1 of Satan testing, tempting Jesus out in the wilderness. And then it's used twice of the Pharisees trying to get one over on Jesus. So this is a negative term. It is not a positive school teacher testing her students, you know, wants to see how they're doing. It's not that kind of positive terms. Instead, it is a rebellious, challenging your authority, hoping you fail term. That's the idea in this term. And so Jesus knows what these guys are after. He knows they're trying to trap him. He knows that they want to see him fail. But here's the thing. Mark this down. Jesus is not in the business of giving people what they want. Jesus is in the business of giving people what they need. Amen? Amen. That's one that we need to file away, though, right? Had those moments? But, Lord, I really want this. And be reminded, he's not in the business of giving you what you want. He's in the business of giving you what you need. And what these guys need is not for Jesus to fail in front of them. What they need is some good teaching. So knowing their heart, Jesus then addresses their heart. Jesus teaches their hearts. Look at how his lesson begins. In verse 15, we see him ask for a coin. Bring me a denarius. Let me look at it. Now, I didn't mention this earlier, but um, you couldn't pay the census tax with any old currency you like. You had to pay the census tax with a Roman denarius. You had to pay it with this particular coin that Jesus is asking for. So they get Jesus one of these coins, and then Jesus asks them all to look at it. Verse 16. He said to them, what? Whose, what? Yeah, whose image, whose likeness and inscription is this? Now, a Roman denarius at that period in history was stamped with the image of Caesar. It had Caesar's image on it. And then on one side of the coin, it had this inscription, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And on the other side, it had Pontifex Maximus, or high priest. So, so these coins had some pretty arrogant inscriptions on them, right? Son of God, high priest. So you can see why the Jews had some issues with this particular coinage. But, but you had to pay the tax with these coins because these coins were viewed as belonging to Caesar. 
They were Caesar's coins. They, they represented your money, but because they had his image on them, these coins were viewed as belonging to him. So Jesus asked the group, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they give the obvious answer, what? Caesar's, okay? Then Jesus masterfully addresses their question. Verse 17, Jesus said to them, what? Render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's, and to God's the things that are, to God the things that are God's. Now, now, this is such a great answer to their question, but maybe, maybe not for the reason that you think. At first glance, it seems like Jesus has dodged a, a cultural, political bullet, right? Like he's given an answer that's got him out of this tough situation. At first glance, it seems like he's, he's used some fancy footwork to avoid their trap, their snare. But there's more going on here than just Jesus avoiding a tricky situation. Again, Jesus is stepping into the role of teacher, and he is teaching these men. And the key to understanding his lesson is this word, render. Render. You might, you might have read right by that word, but, but don't. It is a word that means to give something or to pay something. And it often has the idea of a debt. It often has the idea of a debt. It is used in the New Testament of meeting contractual obligation, of paying laborers, of returning something that you borrowed, of giving a reward, and of settling up your debts. So when Jesus says, again, look at the text here, when Jesus says, render to Caesars the things that are Caesars and to God the things that are God, he is calling both of these groups, these nationalistic Pharisees and these worldly Herodians, to realize, you want to mark this down, to realize their indebtedness to those over them. He's calling them to realize their indebtedness to those over them. He is calling them to realize that they are a people under authority. They are people under authority, and they have obligations to that authority. It's just such a great statement when you really understand what's going on. You see, he hits both groups right between the eyes. And I say that because neither of these groups, when you really study them, neither of these groups was concerned about the authority that they were under. With all of their political arguing and bickering, they were more focused on how to avoid their obligations to that authority. I mean, think about the Pharisees. They did not want to acknowledge Rome's authority. But, but who would put Rome in authority over them? Was it just by chance? Hey, just one day the Romans came to power. It just happened. No. Who had put them there? God had put them there. Like, like every government in history, every government, let me repeat that, every government, the ones you like and the ones that you don't, Every government in history was placed there by the hand and plan of God. Amen? It's all there by the hand and plan of God. And historically, I think that God allowed Rome to rule over his people for the good of his people. Roman rule both, both refined God's people as a form of discipline for them, and it also protected them. Um, there was a period before Roman rule of just brutality and upheaval. There was this guy, Antiochus Epiphany, who was just, uh, just an awful thing for the Jewish people. But here comes Rome, and Rome, Roman rule really uh, brought a lot of peace to that particular section of the world. Now, it wasn't perfect, but it brought a lot of peace to that particular section of the world. So, so God, I think, had used this for the good of his people, to refine them and also to protect them. But the Pharisees, they refused to see this. Instead, they were constantly pushing back on God's design for them. Let me just ask you a question. Did you ever find yourself doing that? You listen to a little hate, too much hate and discontent radio, you know what I'm talking about? And you start griping and complaining, and then you start finding yourself pushing back against God's design. Well, that's what these guys were doing. They were pushing back against God's design for them, and so were the Herodians. I mean, the Herodians were all for Roman rule, but they really didn't want to obey and honor God, did they? They were worldly. And they wanted to live just like the people of the world, just like the nations around them, instead of like the people that God had called them to be. So both groups were not rendering authority over, rendering to the authority over them the authority that was due them, the honor that was due them. So, so they weren't responding right, and then Jesus comes and says to them, render, render, give authority, give honor to the authority over you. So here they come to Jesus, and they want to make him look like the fool. But again, praise God, Jesus has given them what they wanted. He gives them what they needed. And their hearts need to be challenged to realize that they were people under authority. Now, there's one more interesting dynamic of Jesus' lesson that I want to quickly explore. Um, back in verse 16, Jesus asked this question, Who, whose likeness 
is on the coin, right? He asks this question. And, and the idea in his statement in verse 17 is that the coin bears whose image? Caesar's. So if it bears Caesar's image, it belongs to who? Caesar. So what looks has Caesar's image on it belongs to Caesar. His image is a sign of his ownership. Now, what is interesting here, as, as you really think through Jesus' statement in verse 17, is whose image do we bear? Who, whose likeness is on us? God's, right? The Bible teaches that each and every one of us is made in the image, made in the likeness of God. And so if what Jesus says about the coin is true, if it bears Caesar's image, it belongs to Caesar, what does that say about each and every one of us? Yeah, we belong to God. If image is a sign of ownership, then we belong to God. That's Jesus' statement. Now, several, several scholars have actually pointed out that, that they think Jesus and Mark are really doing a little wordplay here. They argue that Jesus wants us to understand that when he says, and render to God the things that are God's, he's talking about our very own lives. He's talking about our very own lives. Just like the coin, our lives belong to the one whose image they bear. So the idea here then is render to Caesar what you owe him, what bears his image and belongs to him, this denarius, and render to God what you owe him, what bears his image and belongs to him, your very own life. And this really takes us back to the parable that opened the chapter. As I explained the first week we were working through this series, this parable is really placed here by Mark at the heart of these conflict stories, again, it's right in the midst of these conflict stories, to help us understand what's going on. It's Mark's interpretive key that he has given us. And, and so what does that parable show us? That parable shows us that God is in authority, and, and honor and worship and praise are due him. But the parable also shows us that the leadership of Israel were refusing to give that to God, right? They were refusing to acknowledge God's authority. They were trying to keep what belonged to God for themselves. They were trying to be their own authority, to run their own show, to be the boss, instead of realizing and honoring the authority of God manifest in his son. They were just like petulant little children, eager to challenge authority so that they could do what they want, when they wanted, instead of living like obedient children joyfully embracing the authority of God manifest in the presence and person of his son. And the reality is, and Mark is challenging us, and how Mark is challenging us, is is that we too are often like these guys. We too are often like them. Let me ask you this question this morning. Are you rendering authority to whom authority is due? Are you rendering authority to whom authority, honor and authority to whom authority is due? I mean, really think about this. Are you rendering honor to whom honor is due? Are you treating authority the right way? You see, these guys, these hypocrites sent out to trap Jesus, they weren't. They wanted to be their own authority. And really, this is the way of every sinful, fallen heart. We want to do what we want to do. Amen? I don't know if anybody's going to agree with me on that. But that's the way it is. I mean, we might from time to time show, show outward respect to those in authority. But often, I mean, think about this. Really think about this. The compass of our heart is set on the pursuit of whose will? Our own. Our own will, our own desires, our own pursuits. We often make decisions based on one simple question. What do I want? What do I want? And again, please realize I'm putting myself in that same boat. I mean, I'm convicted by what I see here. And I'm thinking about that from my own perspective. So many times I fall into that trap. I'm making decisions based on that. Well, what do I want? Maybe I don't say it out loud, but that's what's going on in the heart. What do I want? I mean, again, I'm saying this in love, but to challenge you. Most of us live lives as, as though we are the center of the universe, right? We have erected these thrones in our hearts, and we love to sit upon them. I love to sit and say, well, this person's wrong and this situation's wrong and how dare they? And on and on and on we go from the throne of our heart. Now, we might come to Jesus from time to time trying to butter him up, you know, to get what we want. But really, we don't desire to submit to his authority. We don't desire any authority but our own. And to such hearts, hearts like the, the worldly Herodians or those 
legalistic Pharisees, Jesus says, render what is due. He speaks an authoritative word to our worldly, to our legalistic hearts. Render what is due. Give God the glory that is due him, for he created you, you bear his image, and you belong to who? To him. You belong to him. Here's a really important question. What do we do with these hearts of ours that push back against that, you know, that don't want to do that? Want to stay as the center of our own world? What, what do we do? What do we do with these hearts of ours? What do we do when our heart says, no, I don't want to? Do we just dismiss that and say, well, you know, that's the way people are. That's just the way people are. Or, or do we try to hide them and, and keep playing the game like our hearts really aren't that way? What do we do? What do we do? Well, first, we need to understand that such approaches, well, that's just the way we are or trying to hide that, we understand that, that as the parable here shows us, such approaches are dangerous approaches. Again, the question, what will the owner of the vineyard do, right? That's a heavy-duty question. So we need to first understand that there are dangerous approaches, but then here's really the solution. And the solution isn't complicated, but it is truly revolutionary. You ready for this? Here's the solution. Two words. You ready? Repent and believe. Repent and believe. You say, I know that. No, seriously, think about this. Repent and believe. Repent. Repent of what? Repent of your rebellion. Repent of my rebellion. Repent of refusing to honor God as the authority of your life. Get down on your knees and repent. Repent. Repent of going your own way. Repent of living according to your own wisdom. Repent of seeking your own way. Cry out to God for his grace and repent. Repent. And what? Believe. Believe. Believe what? Believe that there is forgiveness for rebels like us. Amen? There is forgiveness for rebels like us. Believe that, joyfully believe that forgiveness is found in none other than Jesus Christ. Believe that Jesus obeyed for our disobedience. That he died for our rebellion. And then he rose again on the third day so that you and I might know true forgiveness by faith in him. Joyfully believe that forgiveness is found in Jesus. It is, amen? Forgiveness is found in Jesus. And also joyfully believe that Jesus is the better king. Believe that Jesus is the better king. Jesus, you know what I mean by that? He does a better job on the throne of your life than you do. That's what I mean. Jesus is the better king. He does a better job on the throne of your life. And you need to believe that. You need to believe that his way is better than yours. That his leadership over your life is better than yours. That his authority is better than yours. That he is the better king. An infinitely better king on the throne of your heart. You see, and I've said this before, I'll say this again. Following Jesus means what? Following Jesus. Following Jesus means following Jesus. It means embracing. That's what I mean by by believing. Truly embracing that he is Lord. What does it mean to be a Christian? I'm following who? My own whims, my own desires, my own authority? No, I'm following who? Jesus. Following Jesus means following Jesus. He is the better king. Now I realize, brothers and sisters, this is a daily battle. It is, amen? It is a daily battle. But keep praying, keep diligent, keep seeking that work of the Spirit, that ministry of the Word of God, that you would come to see more and more and more the joy of resting in and following Jesus, that he is the better king. Remember Jesus says this, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 and 29. When you, when you wrestle with Jesus' authority in your life, go back to this verse, Matthew eleven twenty-eight and 29. Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Learn from me. Stop trying to figure out everything on your own. Learn from me. Follow my leadership, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Repent and believe. Believe that he forgives and believe that he is the better king. That is how we respond to the authority of God. We render to God what is due him by following his son, whom he has given to save us and to lead us. That's how we respond to his authority. We're going to 
close our service, I think, in a fitting way this morning. We're going to close our service by celebrating the one given to save us and to lead us. We're going to gather together around the Lord's table this morning. So I'll ask the men to come forward, and let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the way that your word challenges us. I pray that you would guard us from from looking at these legalistic Pharisees or these worldly Herodians and looking at them with condemnation and not realizing what we see in them is so often found in our own hearts. It's so often we're trying to wiggle our way out of being under authority, trying to get around the rules or trying to push back because we don't think this authority is doing this, that, or the other the right way. Instead of really stopping and asking the question, how do I need to respond to this authority? What do I need to render to this authority? Instead of really asking the question, how am I showing honor to God by honoring this authority that he has placed over me? Lord, and help us to see that really, boy, that pushback against some of those levels of authority that we encounter, whether that is the government or our job or our family or the church, So often there's a bigger issue and it's our pushback against you. So help us really to have hearts that are joyfully submitted to you. That recognize the rebellion that springs up there and realizes that we need to repent of that and believe that we have been forgiven that because of the blood of Jesus. And help us also to continually remember that Jesus is the better king. Oh Lord, by your spirit, just engrave that upon our hearts, engrave that upon our minds this week as we come to situation after situation. Jesus is the better king. His way is better. It's so obvious, Lord Jesus, that you are the better king. For you came and lived sinlessly. And then you died for us. You are our loving, saving king. You have dealt with the greatest burden that we we have, our very own souls, why would we then not want to follow you with the daily decisions of our lives? Remind us of that now as we gather together around your table. Remind us of your love and your sacrifice. You are loving, saving King. These things we pray in your name. Amen.